This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Shai David, co-founder and CEO of Retrain.ai. But let me ask you, for any organization that you ever work for, when was the last time you logged in to a corporate learning network and expected to actually learn something? The answer is that never happens, right? When was the last time that you yeah. get an email from HR that actually had an important career advice for you? Again, that never happens. When was the last time that a candidate at a company submitted their resume and got a call within 15 minutes saying, we've processed your request, we think we understand who you are, we have two questions and we want to schedule an interview for you for tomorrow. Again, that never happens. But this is not a joke. This is a problem affecting billions of people every day. The systems that are intended to manage talent acquisition, to manage talented organization, to manage learning and development, those systems are failing. And the cost of that failure is catastrophic. This is Shai. He's a serial entrepreneur who brings many years of experience in dreaming up products and making them a reality. From concepts to market, from slideware to hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. He co-founded Kaltura, where he helped define the future of video, thereby taking responsibility as CRO, but also as GM and today as a member of the board. Prior to that, he co-founded Destinated Technologies, a mobile GPS navigation software, and consulted on open systems to Fortune 500 companies. Today, he's the co-founder, chairman and CEO of Retrain.ai, a company that is founded on the vision to make measurable impact on global unemployment rates by helping 10 plus million users find meaningful career opportunities and help enterprises future-proof their organizations. Their mission? To inform, empower, and redefine the way enterprises hire, retrain, and grow their employees. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Shai to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the talent development market and why the best strategy for managing HR and talent management today, sadly is, we'll do tomorrow what we did yesterday. Shai shares his vision on how to solve the global talent problem at the core. He also shares his secrets how to create a sustainable advantage and what needs to be in place to shape a software business that people not only start talking about, but keep talking about. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, why having a shared image with your customers about the future state of the world is critical to create momentum. Secondly, that the way to understand whether you're on the right track is to ask your customers to articulate in one sentence how you give them immediate value. Thirdly, why it's not about finding market fit, but about keeping market fit. And fourthly, why, in order to succeed, you shouldn't think about technology, regulations, or money. That always comes second. Well, hi, Shai. Thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on this podcast. Thank you, and a fantastic time to be here. Yeah, I was looking forward to this. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to an old, how do you say that, 
co-worker of yours, someone that reported to you a couple of years ago, Ariel Hitron from Second Nature. And he has started a pretty inspiring company called Second Nature. And when I asked him at the end, who should I talk to? You know, who in your network has a remarkable story to tell and is on the mission like you as well? And he immediately mentioned you. So we're going to talk about your company, Retrain, which you actually started about two years ago, I saw. Yes. Before we do that, just to give the audience a little bit of a insight into who you are, if you would have to describe yourself and characterize yourself with two or three keywords, what comes out? I would say entrepreneur, scholar, and yogi. The last two I haven't heard a lot. Or no, I haven't. Scholar, that's like always learning, I imagine. Yep. Okay, yogi. Why the yogi part? The yogi part. I'm big into yoga, like we all should be. I think yoga is life and life is yoga. Some people say, Oh, yoga is not for me. And I ask him whether they ever breathed. And they said, Yes, of course I breathed. If you breathed, you did yoga. So we're all on the mission and we we've all started. Yeah, I think when you're making a key point, it's a very good way to step back and, yeah. Ask the big questions. So maybe we get to ask some of those today. That's for sure. That's for sure. So what drives you as an entrepreneur? What do you get energy from? I think I get a lot of energy from seeing the impact that technology has in the world and the way that technology could actually have positive impact. I was lucky enough to spend part of my childhood and part of my adolescence in Silicon Valley. So had a first-person impression of the tech revolution we're all experiencing, where some of the kind of PC revolution and later the internet revolution all started. So I had the chance to see that from the inside, and that left a strong mark on me in the sense that technology is changing the world in meaningful ways, but the impact of technology is not necessarily distributed equally. And I think that I'm very passionate about being able to spread the benefits of technology more equally because technology is probably the driving force in our time. And we'll spend more time today talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and next generation algorithms, which are all coming and even accelerating the trends that we've seen. Yeah. But I'm very passionate about those areas. Yeah, and I completely agree with you that the value isn't distributed equally. Funny enough, Quintus Williams, who is a valued member of my CEO mastermind, he runs a company and his mission is to reduce wealth inequality. I think that is a nice connection to that as well. And he's doing that through yeah, a platform that does employee participation to actually make people co-owner of the company. And as a consequence, you know, first of all, divide the wealth in a fair way, but also get all the benefits from that. Nice. And I think that if you think about the role that technology plays in society over the last few decades... I think people don't necessarily understand that. If you've been in the tech circus like you and I have for the last few decades, then we knew this was coming. But the rest of the economy had a hard time catching up. If you look at the Fortune 100, if you look at Fortune 10, what are the 10 biggest companies in the world? 15 or 20 years ago, there wasn't a single technology company in those. It would be either the oil and gas companies like ExxonMobil or it would be the retail companies like Walmart or be financial services like a Bank of America. Today... Five of the top 10 biggest companies in the world are all tech companies. And again, this is a shift that if you've been in tech, you knew this was coming, but it really dramatically accelerated only in the last 10 years. And COVID was an even further accelerator for that. Yeah. I'm eager to see what COVID did to the rankings. I haven't looked recently, but I can imagine that a couple of companies have gone up and that the yeah, top 10 is, is, the is, first is changing already. That, the, first company, the only first companies in the world that are multi-trillion dollar companies are all tech companies, right? It's the Googles and Microsoft and Apples of the world and yeah, that had exactly. never happened in history. So that's the power <laughs> of tech, but it's highly concentrated like your friend sees. And the question at hand is how could we use technology for a wider benefit? That's the bridge to what we're going to talk about today, to your company, Retrain. And I already can feel where this is going. What is the big idea behind your company? What was the big problem that you saw that we was screaming for an answer? The big idea is that we are going to use artificial intelligence in order to help solve what is right now probably one of the biggest emergencies facing humanity, which is the skills gap emergency. And if you look at the terms as put forward by people like the World Economic Forum, say, or research coming out of McKinsey or PwC, you understand that not only is technology not distributed equally, but the skills in the world are not distributed equally. 
And we have this situation where more than a billion people in the world don't necessarily have the skills to participate in the economy on one hand. On the other hand, many organizations in the world can't find skilled labor to do the tasks. There is a very tight labor market. There is a worldwide shortage of employees in many, many different domains, ranging from pilots to nurses to programmers, but even welders and drivers and forklift operators. So just a worldwide shortage of skilled labor. So that creates an emergency. That emergency actually is, is two emergencies coupled into one. On a personal level, for an individual that doesn't have the requisite skills to participate in the economy, it's devastating. The challenge for an individual like that is not just unemployment, it's unemployability. Yeah. If you got fired from a bank that's closing down branches and moving to online banking, you can know if you were fired from Barclays was closing down many high street branches. You can't just cross the street to HSBC because they're also firing people. Yeah. If you were a shift line manager in a manufacturing company, but automation is now driving robots instead of that, and you cannot program a robot, then you're in tough luck. You become not only unemployed, you become unemployable. So that's one half of the emergency. But it's, a, yeah. it's also an emergency from a company perspective, because if you're a bank and you're shifting to mobile banking and you need new types of talent with digital skills, not only do you have to eliminate a lot of jobs, but you also have to create a lot of jobs and you can't yeah. find enough people for those new jobs. So that mismatch is a true emergency and it's devastating outcome for individuals and it's devastating outcomes for organizations. Our hope at Return yeah. AI is to help solve that problem, both for individuals and organizations, by being able to put forward what we call the world's foremost, most actionable, most granular, talent-intelligent platform. We have an AI that can yeah. help understand what people can do. We've created a skills taxonomy and a skills framework that allows nice. us to understand both hard and soft skills, both motivation and demographics, both certifications and capabilities. And we understand what people can do and we understand what organizations need. And in that sense, our hope is that AI, which is part of the reason for a lot of this disruption could also be reversed in its force and become a force for good. So AI is creating a lot of the disruption, but potentially AI could also be part of the solution. Impressive. And I mean, I completely agree. I mean, Kudos for you how you've explained what the big problem really is, because it's at that level. It's massive. I mean, I've been working for units for a lot of years, 26 years or so, and we were with our solution focused on the service economy as well, like mm -hmm. the, those companies that are delivering value through people. And if you already, I think it was already 2017 or so, you see how this labor market is shrinking because on the one hand side, there's not enough people coming in because there's less children being born. And on the other hand, elderly people are getting older and leaving the workforce. So, I mean, there's just not enough people to do the job. And then on top of that is that even if there were enough people, they don't have the right skills because everything is changing so incredibly fast. If this is the case, and I think you're absolutely right, it's the changing demographics, it's changing technology, yeah. it's technology leadership that is missing. So what are we going to do about it? So the big idea behind our system at Retrain AI is that we're thinking about the system almost as the Google Maps of the labor market. If we can draw the map and understand what does the market need and baseline, basically create the map with industry reports and insights and benchmark, all used based on data, not on hunches and gut feeling, that would be a foundation layer. On top of that, we can map individuals and we can map organizations. So we can place people on the map. Then we can start understanding motivations, from an individual perspective and strategic workforce planning trends from an organizational perspective and be able to chart the pathways, both career pathways and learning pathways. And then because this whole system is based on a big knowledge graph and uses a lot of algorithms and AI, we're able to predict the vocational traffic jams, if you will, understand which jobs are being eliminated, which jobs are being created. How could we marry the three principal components of this market which are the talent acquisition, helping organizations put their hands on the right talent, the talent development and talent management, making sure that people can learn what they want to learn and making sure that they stay on the job 
because they're engaged, they're in flow, and they can continue to do what they do while enjoying the benefits of learning organizations. So if we can marry those three components, we get a system that uses AI in order to do exactly what our tagline says, which is hire, develop, and retain your talent using data and algorithms rather than using hunches and gut feelings. Exactly. I love that analogy of the Google Maps for the labor market, that you plot people, plot organizations, bring them together, yeah, plot the pathways to where they need to go. It's <laughs> so visual. And um, I think that the, I think the reality, the reality really of the market that for both individuals that are trying to manage their career, but also organizations that are trying to manage their talent pool, many of them, yeah. the reality is they're flying blind. Their best yeah. strategy for managing HR and talent management to date is we'll do tomorrow what we did yesterday. That might have been fine. And maybe that worked fine in the 20th century. Not really for some, but maybe. Definitely doesn't work fine for the 21st century. The rate of change is so fast that organizations that are going to keep doing the same are just going to disappear. This is not going to get people's wet. This is a tsunami that's going to drown out people that are not going to be able to adopt. And I think that the strongest area in the market where we see this is related to digital talent and technical talent. Organizations that are having a very hard time modernizing the workforce and developing the digital tools that they need and the digital skills that they need. And many of the organizations that are our clients in financial services, in healthcare, in retail, in manufacturing, the biggest trend that we see is that they're trying to put their hands on emerging technology leadership. And that is very hard to do because very few people wake up in the morning and say, I want to work for a supermarket chain or I want to work for a manufacturing company if I have those digital skills. Many of those people want to work for Google or Amazon. They don't necessarily want to go and work for industry or for traditional commerce companies or financial services companies. And I think that that is a very meaningful trend. How could traditional organizations transform themselves to be more tech-friendly and tech-oriented? How could they put their hands on tech leadership? The first order of business for the organizations is to help develop the map, to even understand what do they need? Where are they today? How could they chart a path to where they need to be tomorrow? So even before you hired a single person or trained a single person, just understanding the insights of where you are in the transformation from an HR perspective is already tremendous value for a lot of these organizations. Wow. So what is the opportunity if you get this right? And maybe we already explored on that, but it's going to be a different world at the end. I think that from an enterprise software perspective, we're talking about a new market that is being formed for talent intelligence or intelligent talent. It's at the intersection of what historically have been three distinct enterprise markets, which included talent acquisition, talent management, learning and development. Every company in the Fortune 500 Global 2000 has at least three budgetary line items related to that. Every single Fortune 500 has already invested significant amounts of money and resources in talent acquisition, in talent management, in learning and development. But let me ask you, for any organization that you ever work for, when was the last time you logged in to a corporate learning network and expected to actually learn something? The answer is that never happens, right? You only log into some of those systems when you get the 17th email reminder that you're non-compliant with your annual non-sexual harassment training, right? Or that there's some course that your boss assigned to you. And if you don't do that, you're in trouble. That's pretty much the only time you would log into the system. When was the last time that you get an email from HR that actually had an important career advice for you. Again, that never happens. You know, you only talk with those systems when there's some problem with your payroll. When was the last time that a candidate at a company submitted their resume and got a call within 15 minutes saying, we've processed your request. We think we understand who you are. We have two questions and we want to schedule an interview for you for tomorrow. Again, that never happens. Normally we have that black box problem. You submit your resume and you never hear back and you don't know whether they want to call you back or not. I'm making a joke out of it, but this is not a joke. This is a problem affecting billions of people every day. The systems that are intended to manage talent acquisition, to manage talented organization, to manage learning and development, those systems are failing. And the cost of that failure is catastrophic. So we have to do something about it. And this is why we're trying to build what we're trying to build. Amazing. 
So this has been going on for about two years now. What sparked it? What was that moment where you said, okay, enough is enough. Now I'm going to do something about it. A lot of my experience came from my previous company. I was a co-founder and first the CTO and then the chief revenue officer and the GM of one of two business units of a business called Cultura. Cultura was a video platform used by many of the Fortune 500, many of the global 2000. Yeah. And at Cultura, we were always very proud, what I would call video plumbers. We were people that were going to get the video right. We were very focused on the bits and the bats. We were very focused on making sure that the video had the highest quality. And we had a phenomenal customer basis. People from like anywhere from Voice of America to Bank of America, British Petroleum, AstraZeneca, uh, Vodafone, many, many different customers, SAP, IKEA, the world's biggest names, trusted Cultura with their video platform. But Cultura never got into content. And one of the things that I learned at Cultura was that learning and development and enterprise learning and training was one of the major use cases. So that kind of gave me an idea in my mind that there's something there. If people are yeah, investing yeah. so much and are getting this heavy lifting enterprise systems for learning and training, there must be a pretty big need. And I was going a lot around the world as my role as CRO, talking with many CIOs and business line managers and CEOs and boards and understanding why are they using video. And it became apparent to me that the use of video in the enterprise was part of a larger trend of enterprises needing to manage knowledge. They needed that in order to get the right people, in order to train them, in order to keep them engaged. Video was just one tool. But yeah. in my mind, while video is important, there were other needs of those organizations that were focused not on the technology, but on people. So that's kind of what sparked the idea. And I partnered with two amazing co-founders to build this company, Isabel and Avi. Isabel came from this domain. She started early on in her career, an HR tech company that was focused on placing people in the home services market. Sold that company successfully, managed a portfolio of companies after that. Our internal joke is that Isabel tried to do a lot of what we do here, but before the age of AI. So the operative tools were sticky notes on the fridge. And hopefully <laughs> now we get to do something more sophisticated. My other co-founder, Avi, had a long and decorated career with the Israeli military and intelligence forces. He was the CIO and CTO for Israeli military intelligence and the wow. chief data officer of the Israeli military. So he's seen how to build large scale information systems. So the three of us partnered yeah. together with very complementary skill sets nice. in order to try and build this. And it's a very ambitious task because what we're trying to build is the most accurate, granular, actionable talent intelligence platform ever built. And if you yeah. want to understand the scope and size of it, think about the fact that all of the data of something like LinkedIn, all of the data of something like Indeed, or all of the data of something like monster.com or seek or recruit or many of the other big players. Those are all small subsets of the type of data sets that we're talking about. We're talking wow. about the world's largest knowledge graph ever assembled about people, about jobs, about training pathways. Impressive. So yeah, that brings me to the next sort of section of this podcast, like this journey. You've just highlighted a number of pretty high bars to meet. Mm -hmm. How do you start something like this? Like, what do you decide to build yourself? And what do you decide to partner for? I think that's a great question. And I think it goes to the heart of the question of what's the core and what's the periphery? I think for us, the core is the data and the algorithms. And I think that we're building this entire system in a format that we call platform as a service because it's a very crowded ecosystem and we don't want to boil the ocean. All of the organizations that we want to sell to, and this is a B2B enterprise sales model, all of those organizations, as I mentioned earlier, they already have multi-million dollar investment in all those systems. Our expectation is not that they're going to just go throw that away. Our hope is that they use our system to add intelligence to all those layers of acquisition, management, and learning and development. So for that, we need to partner at the application level with many different players in the market, which we've started to do. But we want to focus on the core. And the core are the algorithms that understand that type of human behavior and understand organizational need. So the core of our system, what we're building in-house completely, and the core of what we're building is what we call the global skills framework. That is a huge knowledge graph that includes tremendous amounts of data coming from private sources, from government sources, from public sources, from company sources. Let me make a small interruption here. 
Shady has made an excellent remark about the crucial decisions that they have made to create something from the ground up that has defensible differentiation. They didn't build yet another talent management, talent acquisition or learning and development suite. Instead, they decided to get to the essence, solving the talent problem at the foundational level. By understanding what people do, what organizations need, predict the vocational traffic jams and help solve that at the core. And this is a trait remarkable software companies master. They focus on the essence, create new value possibilities and create something that's instantly valuable and desirable. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will start within 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Of course, all of it is designed to be highly secure and with extremely high degrees of privacy, including all of the usual GDPR and ISO and SOC 2 and all the global standards. It's all designed based on algorithms for AI that are explainable by design because that's one of the bigger risks when you put AI systems yep. and people's data together is that you get a system that you can't even explain, like several early starts in this ecosystem several people kind of fell flat on their face because they had great ai nobody knew if the results were any good and nobody could explain it so we're hoping to do a little better on that and that's kind of the core of what we're building yeah. at the application layer we're partnering with a lot of people because whether the application yeah. is a talent marketplace or whether the application is an integration with an applicant track system or whether the application is additional screens into an existing human capital management system. That is going to be very different in different deployments. And that's going to change. And eventually there's going to be dozens, if not hundreds of ways of consuming that talent intelligence. But the core really is that knowledge graph behind it. And one yeah. of the things that we learned through these two years of development, it's a very hard task. Because I can imagine, things, yeah. among other things, one of the things that makes it hard is that for an AI system to learn, it needs to learn from something. And part of the challenge is that in this domain, there were not very good data sets from which the AI can learn. Historically, All the topic. Been, exactly. And historically, this has been an area that has been extremely data rich, but information poor. If you think about a large enterprise that has 200,000 employees, they have tremendous amount of data on the employees, but none of those data points connect. So if you want your AI to start learning about the people and about the organization, you need a label set to tell the AI, hey, this is the patterns that we're seeing, and then the AI can pick up. So a lot of the efforts that we did early on in our journey was to create those label sets and to be able to have maybe lower level algorithms that could help the AI start picking up those patterns and get better over time. So developing this whole system as a learning system is a big challenge. We're spending a lot of time. On that, and our AI and algorithm team, I think, is one of the best in the world on that. We've assembled a lot of domain experts that are experts in both HR and AI. And uh, you, are helping you touch upon a very important topic, and I've written about it a couple of times, that in order to create something remarkable, a remarkable software business, because, I mean, I wrote a book about it, those companies typically choose to go and do the hard thing first rather than mm -hmm. start with the basics and uh, maybe the low-hanging fruit. Any thoughts on that? I think that we've defined two principles that I think help us choose when facing with those kind of conundrums. Yeah. One I would call customer centricity, and the second is data centricity. Customer centricity to me means that any decision that you take, whether it's about your the scope of the next sprint of your R&D or your next marketing dollar spent or whatever activity you want to do, we always try to put the customer in the center of that decision. Is this going to create more value for the customer? And when the company was just starting out, our customers were design partners. We went to a series of organizations, mostly in healthcare and financial services, but several other domains too. And we told them, listen, here's what we're building. It has a lot of wires sticking out. You know, the system is not fully done, but we think it can provide value very early on. Would you work with us, pay a little money, just to show some seriousness fee, but help us design the system from a customer perspective. We've established a customer advisory board and we've established a series of design partnership and put the customer in the center. So that's one thing that helped us maybe get away from the type of challenges of what to do first. That's one. Two is the principle I call data centricity. 
which is, it's not, oh, we have a hunch, we have an intuition. Intuitions and hunches are critical in business, but data is as important and sometimes more important. So when we looked at design decisions, when we look at prioritization, we looked at the data. If we develop the system in this way or the other, what is the impact going to be? How could we measure that impact? And that is true when we are thinking about our data acquisition strategy, the data processing strategies, the algorithms, the applications, all of it has to be measured in data. And I think that if you marry both of those principles together, customer centricity and data centricity, you're getting a pretty strong decision criteria for yep. what to do first, because now it becomes apparent to you of what is the next big thing that you want to do. And this is how we kind of structure the roadmap. Yeah. And what you need to do yourself to create defensible differentiation and whatnot. Exactly. Exactly, exactly right. So what has been the hardest nut to crack? Maybe that's like an impossible question, but like, yeah, what has been a big hurdle that you had to move? And yeah, I think the first, the first, and this is maybe ironic because we're a company that tries to create opportunity for talent and the hardest nut to crack is getting the right talent. You know, the famous <laughs> metaphor, but getting the right people on the bus. Before the bus can move anywhere, you got to get the right people on the bus. So we spent the first few months just making sure that we have a very diverse team with a lot of domain knowledge, but we needed knowledge in multiple domains, in data, in algorithms, in AI, in software, and of course, in human capital management. So we've got this phenomenal team together. We scaled that team from zero to about 70 people now in the span of two years. So we had very rapid growth and was extremely important for us to maintain a lot of diversity in the team. We didn't want only white programmer Python dudes in the room as we're building this because the world that we see around us is a very diverse world. So yeah. we started the company as a multi-local company to begin with, with teams in the US, teams in Europe, teams in Israel. And the R&D center itself, we've created a lot of diversity. Where core R&D is in Tel Aviv, but very important to us, we have a small development team in Palestine, and we have an Israeli-Palestinian collaboration. We even got a team of neurodiverse people that are mostly focused on the data labeling and tagging. Those are people that are challenged in some ways and are extraordinary in other ways. We're very proud of that collaboration. Good balance between men and women on the team. So I would say that that's the first battle. In order to win that war on talent, you need to win the battle on diversity and on talent. So that's probably been the toughest thing. I won that battle, but I think we're making good strides. I'm very happy with the type of team that we've assembled. And I think yeah. that that's the first. So I think that that's one big battle. The second big battle has to do with, I would call it opening the black box. It's relatively easy to go to non-technical audiences and woo them with the promise of AI and machine learning, right? You go and you say, I have this and I have that and I have some Python and I have some JavaScript and I have TensorFlow and you throw in all the big buzzwords. The challenge with that is uh, the problem known as garbage in, garbage out. It's relatively easy to develop AI. You throw some data, you get some data, you say that the AI did something. And if you say it enough times, maybe somebody's going to buy it. That, of course, doesn't work at scale and doesn't produce any meaningful results. Okay. So, so the second challenge I would say is how could you develop a true AI system, a true learning system that identifies patterns, that makes recommendations, and those recommendations are going to impact people's lives. Yep, but yep. to develop it, not as a black box, but as a white box, developing is something that you can open the hood. And when people start thinking about it, I always use a metaphor talking to them about yep. their car. And I would ask you, Tone, when was the last time you actually changed oil on your car? And the answer is probably not recently, right? You, you stopped changing oil on your car many years ago. But would you ever consider buying a car that where you couldn't open the hood? The hood would tell you, you get 10% discount, but you can never open the hood. Would you ever buy that car? For most people, the answer is no. Even though you have no intention of changing the oil on your car, the fact that you can open it gives you the peace of mind that it's explainable, that you can look at what's going under the hood, that you can service it with... Yep, multiple yep. organizations, and then you're not beholden to the vendor. Well, I would say yep. that developing AI, particularly in the area of HR, as a white box and as a yep. kind of open kitchen style, 
development, that's probably the second biggest battle because everything is under scrutiny and you can't keep secrets and you have to share the data. And that's very tough. Yeah. But I think, I think we're also winning kind of that war because I think it's... Yeah, good. that's a nice movement that's indeed coming. And I've had many people on the podcast that were talking about it in maybe different ways, ethical AI, black box, indeed, and opening it up, explainable yeah. AI. Yeah, and we like um, to talk about all of these things, but we like to talk about the idea of explainable by design and open by design. And instead of talking about black boxes and proprietary trade secrets and proprietary data, etc. And sometimes that stands in contrast because you were talking earlier, how do you create a sustainable advantage and how do you create moats and how do you create shields? In yeah. our view, transparency, explainability, accountability, those are the true moats of a technology. It's because the users are going to be your biggest advocates. If you give them a system that actually works in a transparent way without beholding them to locking their data, yeah. that's what's going to create the true lock-in. It's the customer love. Yeah, exactly. That creates trust and recommending it to someone else gives people the feeling that they've got control over what they're saying. Yeah, I agree. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. So that brings me at the end, you know, you've developed a system, you were already talking about some customers, like what has been the biggest learning or yeah, what has been the biggest learning so far selling this, getting the first customers up and running? Because it's something that, of course, is not around. Yes. And I think that's true whenever you sell innovative systems. Part of the challenge is creating a shared image of the world of what could be. Some people are jaded, you know, they've heard too many vendors, they bought too many systems, they had too many failed enterprise implementations. And I think that part of the biggest challenge potentially of getting a system like that in the market is having the capability to develop the shared image with your customers about the future state of the world. And we like to talk about the opportunity that has been created by this skills gap emergency. Whenever there's an emergency, there's going to be a lot of dead bodies at the end. Some organizations are not going to make it. Some people can't participate in the economy anymore. But the people that can... They can thrive. We like to talk about being able to thrive, not only to survive. And the capability to work with organizations and develop that shared image of the world of saying, yes, we can have a system where employees are at the center, where they trust the system, where they want to go to the office and learn using our system, where they can manage their career path in a way that is not contradictory between our organizational strategic workforce planning and an employee's own benefits. Even imagining that, is sometimes hard for some of the customers. But when people started looking at the system, started using the system, I saw the sparkle in their eyes. I remember particularly, you know, we deployed this system with Maccabi Health Services in Israel. Maccabi is one of the largest HMOs in the world. They were yep. the world number one leader in vaccine administration during the pandemic. The company is doing really well. They wanted to get out of COVID stronger than they got into it. And they could because wow. they were world leaders in both administering vaccines and collecting data about it and truly kind of global leader in that. How does an organization like that get out of the pandemic and go on a hiring spree and hire the right people and develop career paths and keep the people engaged both at the administrative level and the clinical level after they've been working their behinds off for two years yeah. and everybody's like, oh, get me out of here. Yeah, we deployed yeah. a system in Maccabi and we helped them look at the insights of what their team is expected to do. And we learned tremendously just by looking at the data. We learned, for example, that the regional managers, particularly because the company is doing well, want to build on success and market for further success. But very few of them had formal training in marketing just as an example, right? That's something that jumps out of the system, right? You're expecting some of your people to be actively engaged in marketing your services, but you didn't give them proper marketing yeah. training. That's something that the data tells you the story. And I think that being able to look at the data together with the customer 
and to see which stories come out of the data and out of the algorithms. That's kind of a bright moment. And you can see the sparkle in the eye when people see the stories that come out of the data. It's like, oh, wow, we get it now. It's easy. We can do this. And you're beginning to have that smile come on the face saying, this doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to yeah. be complicated. It's just about putting systems that could show the effectiveness and efficacy and use those systems in order to benefit the people that are using it, the employees, the managers, and all the other stakeholders. And if we can do that, I think that it's going to be a, a lot of fun getting it this. It is. Well, I mean, you're touching upon another big topic. I mean, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect. And at the end, of course, the essence of this is that it's something that you create something that people talk about and keep talking about. And the reason why they start doing that because it's something it gives them something meaningful and something that that keeps exceeding them in expectations that's why you get the smiles Absolutely. so i mean unfortunately i didn't interview you earlier on so you could arrive in my book as a case study but i do always like to ask the question what do you believe is a key trait you need to have in order to build something that the world talks about how do you guide your organizations for that i think that it's about value creation I think that whatever it is you're building, it could be technology, it could be a product, it could be a service. I've spent my career in software, so I'll talk about software. There needs to be a direct and incontrovertible line between whatever it is you're building and immediate value to the customer. This yeah. needs to get to the heart of what the people are doing. And I like kind of Sergey's bring toothbrush rule. You know, you use your toothbrush at least twice a day. Your dentist would tell you you need to use it more than twice a day. Could you build a system where your users are going to use it more than twice a day? I imagine that the types of systems that we build for the HR professionals that are buying them, this is the first thing they open when they get to the office. So, you know, they stand in traffic on the way to the office today. Everybody's in hybrid mode and they get the mobile version and they look at it. This is an HR manager who's looking at the type of software that we're building and says, wow, I'm going to log in at 7 a.m. because I have candidates that I need to hire and I have people that I need to retain and I have people that I need to train and this AI system is going to help me do that. So it has yeah. to be immediate value. And if your customers can't articulate what that value in a couple of sentences, you probably got it wrong. Completely agree. Speaking to the converted, but well said. So yeah, we're almost well, I mean, at the top of the hour, quarter of the hour. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, I think I talked about it in the beginning that I started my business, I mean, it was prior to the call, started my business. One, we've seen the statistics of the number of startups with extremely big ideas, really meaningful things that they saw, but so little still survive. You know, the statistics are nine out of 10 doesn't survive or That's sometimes true. even 99%. And one of the things that I keep seeing is the whole secret of creating traction. So what is your secret there? How do you... Keep creating enough traction with your companies that, yeah, you stay alive and you actually thrive as a company. So I think what's common about all these startups that fail, and some of them fail early, and some of them fail later, and some of them fail safely, and some of them fail spectacularly. So there's one common thread about all the startups that fail. And that common thread is that they haven't found product market fit. They haven't yep. been able to create a product that provides a direct line to value for the relevant market. And then product market fits are only two major components, product and market. So the answer to your question is, how do you make sure that you're getting that traction? You have to iterate really rapidly because the market is not constant. The market is changing and the product is not constant. The product is changing. And you have to chase that match between the product and the market over and over and over again until you find it. And when you find it, you have to continue to iterate because the market is going to keep changing. Yeah, but sure. that to me is the secret and it's like a no secret secret because if you don't understand that you're going to fail right it's about understanding is there a market for this type of solution are there enough people for which you can provide enough value and does your product actually provide a value it sounds almost trivial like why even say that but it's amazing to me how many companies miss that they have a remarkable technology but it doesn't provide the value that they say it provides or it provides yeah. tremendous value but to a super small market or it provides it to a market for a while, but then the market changes because of external forces or regulation or competition. And even though they had remarkable value and they had product market fit for a short period of time, they lose it. If you don't understand that, then you're going to lose. If you do understand that, it doesn't mean you're going to win, but at least you have a fighting chance. 
Yeah, exactly. The funny thing is everybody knows, but still, you know, the statistic is so strange to me, like 90%, that number is still 90% after all those years, after all the books that have been written about it, after all the courses, after all the investment and still well, it, I, it's... I, I, uh, but but it's I want to offer you a number. different view. I want to offer you a different view because if you look at an individual company, then the statistics are very demeaning, right? And very tough to stomach. But if you look at the ecosystem as an ecosystem, then maybe it's a happier story. I think about it, the startup ecosystem, you know, is the NBA, right? If nobody yeah. would lose, there wouldn't be a game, right? In every game, one team wins, one team loses. In every season, there are many people that lose, right? And those losses and those companies that don't make it, those are as important to the ecosystem yeah, yeah, as true. the ones that do because they have innovation and they have training for people and they prove yeah. all the ways that things don't work so that others after them could come in and, and do better. So if you look at it from an ecosystem perspective, I think the statistics tell a different story. Yeah, I mean, of course, there is a reason for this. So kind of well, on that journey, and I mean, getting the traction, doing something that's not been done before, doing things that uh, where you work with the largest databases of skills, information in the world. So what's keeping you up at night? I think a lot of what's keeping me up at night is exactly related to that product market fit. I think that the companies early on in their life need to stay on their toes because... Yeah. Everything is changing so rapidly. And we might be thinking that we're onto something big, but we can never rest on our laurels because the market is changing so fast. And there are a lot of people trying to do similar things. The area, particularly that we're working in, HR tech, has seen tremendous influx of investment. People are building treasure chests. And there's kind of a race to the top. I was describing earlier this market of intelligent platforms, intelligent talent platforms. And I think several other companies are competing for that market. And there are a lot of incumbents, including big companies like SuccessFactors and Oracle and Workday, yeah. and they are not going to step away. They're going to try and fight to keep their market. Six or seven or 10 other interesting startups are all fighting for that price. So what keeps me up at night is providing value for the customers in a consistent way and to accelerate that. And I stay up late at night reading books like such as yourself, figuring out how to innovate even faster and reading professional books about innovations in AI, could we use more modern algorithms and reading a lot? And that's kind of my academic yeah. expertise, but history of technology, social aspects of technology, reading a lot of books. One of my favorite recent is by one of our advisors, Carl Frey, called The Technology Trap, making some points about the gaps and differences and similarities between the fourth industrial revolution we're seeing now and the first and second and third industrial revolutions that came before. So I'm trying to bring it all together into a yeah, machine exactly. that's going to innovate really rapidly. All of that while keeping humans in the center. We're not building technology for technology's sake. We're building technology for human sake. Yeah. And that emergency we're facing, those billion people that are about to lose their jobs, some of them have already lost their jobs, those people that are becoming not just unemployed, but unemployable, those keep me up at night. We yeah, need yeah. to move faster because there are a billion people in the world that need this technology yesterday. Well, yeah, that's super inspiring. Well, to kind of close off last question, from all the lessons learned being an entrepreneur, what would be a do and what would be a don't if you'd be asked by other aspiring tech entrepreneurs? So the do's are easy. The do's I think are really easy, which is put your customers in the center. Don't think about the technology. Don't think about the money. Don't think about the regulation. Put the customers first. Make sure that whatever plan you have, whatever product you have, whatever data algorithm, whatever you're developing, is it doing right by your customers? And by customers, I mean not only the people buying it, but also the people using it. In our case, the millions and billions of people that are going to use it. If you can do right by them, the rest of the things are going to figure themselves out. All the regulation and all the NDAs and all the patents and all the funding and all of that is going to figure itself out if you're providing real value for the customer. So that's my biggest do. From the don't is don't give up. Don't listen to the naysayers, right? If you're starting a business and you listen too much 
to the lawyers and the tax advisors and the patent attorneys and all the people that tell you all those million reasons why what you're trying to do is not going to succeed and never going to work. It's going to be too expensive and never going to turn a profit and never going to be legal, et cetera, et cetera. If you listen to all those people too much, you're never going to get off the ground. And definitely, definitely don't look at the statistics of failure because if you look at that, you're never going to get off the ground. <laughs> No, don't do it at all. I completely agree. I think this is a nice way to close the interview. Thank you very much for sharing the wisdom. Extremely inspiring story. That's exactly why I started the podcast and why I'm always inspired to keep going with it because this is what the world needs to hear and what we need to embrace. Yeah, and good luck with the continuation of the journey. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure and I hope we'll get to talk again soon. For sure. And this ends my conversation with Shai. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Shai David, co-founder and CEO of Retrain.ai. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.